You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're going to begin with um, Stan Robinson, who is uh, one of the preeminent science fiction writers and real science fiction writers of the day. I mean, Stan, Stan means a lot to me as a friend, but also as a writer who sort of, I think in many ways, has pulled science fiction out of a number of doldrums and dead ends. He sort of reinvented the... Um, um, Hard SF, he sort of uh, repopularized space travel and colonization, but with a sort of a slightly left focus on it. And right now he's doing something in quite entirely new, and we'll talk about it later. But uh, to begin, let's just let Stan read from it. This is, you can say what the book is and all that. Yeah, yeah. I, okay. I hope I can read using this. Can How's this working? Yeah, people at the back? All right. Okay, I'm going to um, <clears throat> read from uh, a new novel uh, that will be published uh, next year, in the year 2012. The novel is called 2312 and is a novel set in the year 2312. And I think that the um, segments that I read will uh, give you a taste of what it's about. I do want to explain that uh, given the task of describing a, a solar system-wide human civilization, uh, in the year 2312, I, I went back to uh, John Dos Passos's great USA trilogy, very important book for our times, really right now, very relevant. And uh, this has been done before by uh, our, uh, the great science fiction writer John Brunner in the Stand on Zanzibar, The Sheep Look Up, The Jagged Orbit, and Shockwave Rider. He also went back to the USA trilogy by John Dos Passos for a structural reason, that if you want to portray an entire um, civilization in a single novel, you have a, a technical problem of, of giving a lot of information from a lot of different people to be able to portray a whole world rather than the smaller cast that novels usually have and that really that the novel was made for. So Dos Passos did this by having different strands. Uh, the bulk of the story follows characters as they live their lives in America between World War One and, say, 1930. Uh, and they, uh, working people who live their lives like pinballs bouncing around inside a pinball machine. And the story follows them, but on the side there's also sections that are uh, called the camera eye, and there's sections that are called newspaper clippings, and there's a section that is the stream of consciousness of a character that is much like Dos Passos himself. And this is the method that Brunner used for uh, Stand on Zanzibar. So I think a lot of you will remember this, and I've used the same method. So. Um, there will be some lists, because I like lists. There will be some extracts that will be the equivalent of the newspapers. And then where Dos Passos gave pocket biographies, it really prose poems, quite beautiful, of prominent Americans, ranging from um, uh, William McKinley to John Reed to um, Tesla, even. Uh, the, these pocket biographies are beautiful, but in my future novel, I thought, Biographies of non-existent people in that same format wouldn't work, but we do have quite an array of interesting planets and moons out there. So instead of uh, biographies of prominent people, I have uh, biographies of prominent places. So I'll start from the beginning and run you through. Oh, I didn't find a. I'll work on that. 
I need a bell. I need a bell. I need a here. Wait a second. Wait a second. I'll get. To, we have a real bell. Get the bell while I read. Bless you. <clears throat> All right. We'll start right at the beginning. Prologue. The sun is always just about to rise. Mercury rotates so slowly that you can walk fast enough over its rocky surface to stay ahead of the dawn, and so many people do. Many have made this a way of life. They walk roughly westward, staying always ahead of the stupendous day. Some of them hurry from location to location, pausing to look in cracks they earlier inoculated with bio-leaching metallophytes, quickly scraping free any accumulated residues of gold or tungsten or uranium, but most of them are out there to catch glimpses of the sun. Mercury's ancient face is so battered and irregular that the planet's terminator, the zone of the breaking dawn, is a broad chiaroscuro of black and white, charcoal hollows pricked here and there by brilliant white high points, which grow and grow until all the land is as bright as molten glass and the long day begun. This mixed zone of sun and shadow is often as much as 30 kilometers wide, even though on a level plane the horizon is only a few kilometers away. But so little of Mercury is level. All the old bangs are still there and some long cliffs from when the planet first cooled and shrank. In a landscape so rumpled, uh, the light can suddenly jump the eastern horizon and leap west to strike some distant prominence. Everyone walking the land has to attend to this possibility, know when and where the longest sun reaches occur and where they can run for shade if they happen to be caught out or if they stay on purpose. Because many of them pause in their walkabouts on certain cliffs and crater rims at places marked by stupas, cairns, petroglyphs, inuxuit, mirrors, walls, goldsworthies. The sunwalkers stand by these, facing east, waiting. The horizon they watch is black space over black rock. The super-thin neon-argon atmosphere created by sunlight-smashing rock holds only the faintest pre-dawn glow. But the sunwalkers know the time, and so they wait and watch until... A flick of orange fire dolphins over the horizon, and their blood leaps inside them. More brief banners follow, flicking up, arcing in loops, breaking off and floating free in the sky. Star, oh star, about to break on them. Already their faceplates have darkened and polarized to protect their eyes. The orange banners diverge left and right from the point of first appearance as if a fire set just over the horizon is spreading north and south. Then a pairing of the photosphere, the actual surface of the sun, blinks and stays, spills slowly left and right. Depending on the filters deployed in one's faceplate, the star's actual surface can appear as anything from a blue maelstrom to an orange pulsing mass to a simple white circle. The spill to left and right keeps spreading farther than seems possible until it is very obvious one stands on a pebble next to a star. Time to turn and run. But by the time some of the sunwalkers manage to jerk themselves free, they are stunned, trip and fall, get up and dash west in a panic like no other. Before that, one last look at sunrise on Mercury. In the ultraviolet, it's a perpetual blue snarl of hot and hotter. With the disk of the photosphere blacked out, the fantastic dance of the corona becomes clearer, all the magnetized arcs and short circuits, the masses of burning hydrogen pitched out at the night. Alternatively, you can block the corona and look only at the sun's photosphere and even magnify your view of it until the burning tops of the convection cells are revealed in their squiggling thousands, each a thunderhead of fire burning furiously, altogether torching five million tons of hydrogen a second, at which rate the star will burn for another four billion years. All these long spicules of flame dance in circular patterns around the little black pools that are the sunspots, shifting whirlpools in a storms of burning. 
Masses of spicules flow together like kelp beds threshed by a tide. There are non-biological explanations for all this convoluted motion, different gases moving at different speeds, magnetic fields fluxing constantly, shaping the endless whirlpools, all mere physics, nothing more. But in fact, it looks alive, more alive than many a living thing. Looking at it in the apocalypse of the mercurial dawn, it's impossible to believe it's not alive. It roars in your ears. It speaks to you. Most of the sunwalkers over time try all the various viewing filters and then make choices to suit themselves. Particular filters or sequences of filters become forms of worship, rituals, either personal or shared. It's very easy to get lost in these rituals. As the sunwalkers stand on their points and watch, it's not uncommon for devotees to become entranced by something in the sight, some pattern never seen before, something in the pulse and flow which snags the mind. Suddenly the sizzle of the fiery cilia become audible, a turbulent roaring, that's your own blood rushing through your ears. But in those moments, it sounds just like the sun burning. And so people stay too long. Some have their retinas burned. Some are blinded. Others are killed outright, betrayed by an overwhelmed spacesuit. Some are cooked in groups of a dozen or more. Do you imagine that they must have been fools? Do you think you would never make such a mistake? Don't you be so sure. Really, you have no idea. It's like nothing you have ever seen. You may think you are inert, that nothing outside the mind can really interest you anymore, being as sophisticated and knowledgeable as you are, but you would be wrong. You are a creature of the sun. The beauty and terror of it seen from so close can empty any mind, thrust anyone into a trance. It's like seeing the face of God, some people say, and it is true that the sun powers all living creatures in the solar system and in that sense is our God. The sight of it can strike thought clean out of your head. People seek it out precisely for that. Okay, here's a list. This is list number three. Alcohol, fasting, thirsting, sweat lodges, self-mutilation, sleep deprivation, dance, bleeding, mushrooms, immersion in ice water, kava, flagellation with thorns or animal teeth, cactus flesh, exposure to the elements, long distance running, hypnosis, meditation, rhythmic drumming and chanting, jimson weed, nightshade, salvia divinorum, pungent or aromatic scents, toad sweat, tantric sex, spinning in circles, amphetamines, sedatives, opioids, hallucinogens, nitrous oxide, oxytocin, holding one's breath, jumping off cliffs, nitrites, kratom, cocoa leaves, cocoa, caffeine, entheogens, ethylene, an entheogenic gas, escapes from the ground under Delphi. Then here's one of the uh, places, this one in particular, Iapetus. Iapetus looks like a walnut because it is squashed at the poles and has a prominent equatorial bulge, both quite visible from space. Why is it squashed at the poles? At one point it was melted and became a big water drop rotating rapidly, its days only 17 hours long. Something passing by set it spinning like a top and it froze while still spinning. So why the prominent equatorial bulge? No one knows. Some aspect of the freezing of water dropped to ice ball most degree, some kind of surge or excess, but it's something that the Saturnologists still argue about. Whatever caused it, the bulge immediately suggested itself as an obvious location for a city as it could serve as something like a high street peninsula running all the way around the moon. The city was concentrated at first on the hemisphere facing Saturn, which looms overhead four times larger than Luna from Earth. This was felt worth having in one sky, especially since Iapetus's orbit is at a 17 degree tilt from the plane of Saturn's rings. 
giving it a potentially changing view of the gorgeous mobile. Almost all the other moons see the rings only edge on. From the Iapetus bulge, one also has a view down to the rest of the moon's surface, 12 or 16 kilometers lower than the bulge. So there's always a broad ice skate below to balance the sublime ringed pearl above. What color the moon's surface is depends on where you're looking because the leading hemisphere of Iapetus is quite black, while the trailing hemisphere is extremely white. This stark discrepancy, noted by Cassini in October of 1671 when he discovered Iapetus, is the result of the moon being tidally locked. The same hemisphere always leads the charge into the night, and black dust shed by the retrograde moon Phoebe, the other one out of the plane of the rings, therefore always falls on that side. In four billion years, the dust has accumulated to a depth of only a few centimeters. Meanwhile, the trailing hemisphere of the moon gathering frost from the ice subliming off the darker leading side is amongst the whitest ice in the whole system. The result is a two-toned moon, the only one in the solar system. When people came to occupy Iapetus, the top of the equatorial band was smoothed and fitted with a rock and aluminum foundation. Then they began to use seashell jeans to shape the structures of the equatorial city. Some of the flat top of the bulge had been left open for spaceport runways and the like, but most of the bulge is now covered by a long, clear gallery tent placed over buildings that line the great boulevard of the high street, alternating with farms, parks, gardens, and forests. As the air under the tent is always kept warm, the interior architecture can be very open, with Saturn often left visible, framed by gaps in ceilings and roofs. Seashell biomimicry allowed the builders to extract and deploy calcium under mantles, and these soft living tissues were genetically engineered to shape the allowed the architects to layer bioceramic structures one on the next, building structure on structure like corals, until the area under the tent by now is almost full. As with most bioceramic structures, the beveled and layered shapes have been induced to produce scalloping, fanning, notching, and other conchological features. So the buildings look like great seashells stacked one on the next. Sydney is often referenced because of its iconic opera house, but in fact the bulge now looks more like a great barrier reef made of scallops, layered one over the next and everywhere hold, as if by tube worms, to let in the view of Saturn overhead. On the black hemisphere, Cassini Regio, the bulge bisects an area where people once upon a time went out in hoppers and rovers and blew the black dust away to make patterns of exposed white ice. Anytime you can easily make such a contrast in a landscape, people have written out their thoughts for the universe to read. Before the Saturn League was formed, when the first arrivals from Mars had come for Titan's nitrogen and were exploring the other moons as well for whatever else might be plundered and taken back to the red planet, people had come here and etched white out of the black. An exhalation no stronger than a leaf blower would do the job, and soon great fields of Cassini Regio were covered like newspaper rock with petroglyphs. There were white on black figures in the shape of abstract patterns, beasts, stick people, cocopelles, writing in many different alphabets, portraits, landscape features, trees and other plants, and on and on it went. Later, some entire areas were cleared completely to white and then painted with collected black dust to a greater or lesser depth, achieving shadings that had sometimes a trompe d'oeil depth of field proportion for viewing such that it looked normal when viewed from the bulge with others designed to be viewed from space. Graffiti on Iapetus. Mm -hmm. Later it was declared a mistake and a scandal, a moral stupidity, even a crime, in any case disgusting, and there were calls for the entirety of Cassini Regio to be re-blacked. Someday it may happen, but don't hold your breath. For the truth is, we are here to inscribe ourselves on the universe and it is not inappropriate to remind ourselves of this when blank slates are given to us. All landscape art reminds us we live in a tabula rasa and must write on it. It is our world, and its beauty is entirely inside our heads. Even today, 
people will sometimes go out over the horizon and scuff their initials into the dust. Here's list 15. Health, social life, job, house, partners, finances, leisure use, leisure amount, working time, education, income, children, food, water, shelter, clothing, sex, health care, mobility, physical safety, social safety, job security, savings account, insurance, disability protection, family leave, vacation, place tenure, a commons, access to wilderness, mountains, ocean, peace, political stability, political input, political satisfaction, air, water, esteem, status, recognition, home, community, neighbors, civil society, sports, the arts, longevity treatments, gender choice, the opportunity to become more what you are, that's all you need. All right, let's see. Oh, this is cool. This is cool, folks. The extracts are truly extracts. And uh, when an extract has said what it needs to say to the reader, it stops at that point with no punctuation and the sentences just end open-ended and the next extract is introduced. So on the page, that's obvious. But for reading, I have a tool. Extracts, this is number 17. As many people have a significant lifelong quantities of male and female hormones and phenotypically are bisexual, intersex, or indeterminate, the pronouns he or she are often avoided or when used are a matter of self-designation, sometimes changing according to situation. Referring to someone else with such pronouns is the equivalent of using tu rather than vous in French, indicating familiarity with the person. Deepest phenotypic signals of gender appear to be waist to hip ratio and waist height relative to total height, usually a matter of proportionately longer female femurs and wider female pelvic bones. Such as French, Turkish, or Chinese, alternative ungendered pronouns in English include it, e, them, one, on, and un, but none of them have. It is not a case of there is no gender, but rather a complex and ambiguous efflorescence, sometimes called a fully Ursuline humanity, other times just a mess. <laughs> Gatherings composed entirely of gender indeterminate people are a new social space, which some find intensely uncomfortable, eliciting comments such as, like a nakedness I hadn't thought could happen, or you're only yourself, it's terrifying and so on. Clearly, a new kind of psychic exposure. Distinctions can be pretty fine, with some claiming that gin andromorphs do not look like androgens, nor like hermaphrodites, nor eunuchs, and certainly not like bisexuals, that androgens and women are quite different, and so on. Some people like to tell that part of their story, others never mentioned it at all. Some dress across gender and otherwise mix semiotic gender signals to express how they're feeling in that moment. Outrageous macho and femme behaviors, either matched with phenotype and semiotic indicators or not, create performance art, ranging from the kitschy to the beautiful. As there are now people close to three meters tall and others less than a meter tall, gender may no longer be the greatest divide in human... Even approaching the size of spider monkeys, a modification was severely censured by larger people until longevity statistics kept reaffirming the association between smaller sizes and longer lifetimes, especially in light gravities. A saying among small people is, smaller is better. <laughs> we all began female and always had both sexual hormones in us. We also had masculine and feminine behavioral traits, which we had to train into gender-appropriate behaviors, even though they were traits that everyone has. 
We selectively encouraged or repressed traits so that for most of our history we've been reinforced gender. But in our deepest selves we were always both, and now in space, openly both. Very small or very tall, human at last. This culture's structure of feeling could also be called, called balkanized. Gender therapy and speciation were both parts of the longevity project, and the combination of the three created a new structure of feeling that is often characterized as feeling fractured, compartmentalized, bulkheaded, firewalled. Usually, longevity itself is identified as the primary force driving this. Until now, no one has had to integrate a personality in its second century or more, and often it is experienced as an existential crisis. The super elderly have had so many experiences, gone through so many phases, lost so many companions to death or simply time, that they've grown distance from other people. Spacers, mobile over huge distances, especially bold in trying all the augmented abilities, often live as isolatos in a solipsistic narrative or performance of their own. People in space enact a kind of non-attachment. The common opinion expressed is that to keep relationships lasting a long time, one shouldn't see too much of a person or create too intense of a relationship or it will burn out. Paced for the long haul, one spreads oneself out amongst a network of acquaintances and new friends and moves on when love famously has different definitions within cultures, between cultures, and in different historical periods. Balkanized love refers to a situation in which affection, child-rearing, sex, lust, cohabitation, family, and friendship have all been de-linked from each other and reconfigured as affect states, just as individuals and societies have sex itself having been de-linked from reproduction, love, transgression, religion, and other biological and cultural associations has become just a physical function for a lot of people, either private or shared, and pleasurable as a sport or game conversation or bowel movement. Traditional marriage, line marriage, group marriage, polygamy, polyandry, panmixia, timed contracts, creches, roommates, sexual friendships, friends, pseudo-siblings, fellow travelers, soloists. Here's list number seven. We're good. List seven, inadvertent fracking, failed seal, bad lock, bad luck, hyperbaric spark fire, carbon monoxide buildup, carbon dioxide buildup, design flaw, engine housing crack, sudden air loss, solar flare, fuel impurity, metal fatigue, mental fatigue, lightning strike, meteorite strike, accidental critical mass, brake failure, dropped tool, tripped and fell, coolant loss, manufacturing flaw, programming error, human error, containment failure, battery fire, distraction, AI malfeasance, sabotage, bad decision, crossed wires, recreational mental impairment, cosmic ray impact. <laughs> the, this is the only list that is identified as source is the Journal of Space Accidents, volume 297, year 2308. Okay, one more planet and one more list and then we have a uh, a, a, a shared finish. This planet is uh, Io. Io, the innermost moon of Jupiter, as big as Luna. The yellow slag world, awesome upchucking of a moon's guts, regurgitation over and over until everything more volatile than sulfur has long since burned off. Sulfur, 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 sulfur everywhere. 
and nary a place to stand. Four hundred live volcanoes bursting through the slag like angry boils, geysering sulfur dioxide hundreds of kilometers into the air. A moon with an interior hotter than Earth's. And try putting your hand in front of the steam coming out of the volcanic vent on Nea Kameni in the caldera of Santorini to feel just how hot Earth is. It looks like the steam on your stovetop, but you will quickly find it is three times hotter. Even though you snatch your hand away instantly, your skin will blister, and Io's interior is 30 times hotter than that. It looks it, a hell world, flexed hugely in the immense tidal pull between Jupiter and Europa, almost torn apart. That's gravity at work. Then also Jupiter's radiation field is so vast and strong that Io sizzles inside it. Even Deinococcus radiodurans perishes in it. Nothing lives on Io, except humans and the little suite of biota they carry with them everywhere they go. For it is possible to find islands of hard rock in the highlands of the enormous volcanoes and bore into that rock and hide a little station, a cube to hold Wang's cube. Everything there must be triply protected, first by physical walls, then by a magnetic field strong enough to counteract Jupiter's, Jupiter's radiation. But this field itself would be enough to kill. So inside that field, a Faraday cage is necessary to protect you from your protection. <laughs> Descend in a blue magnetic aurora, a fire of electrons. Below, the moon spreads from a ball to a plain to a tumultuous mountainscape of overlapping volcanoes, the bulky cones hard to spot in all the overlapping swaths of yellow on tan, on white, on black, on brick, on bronze, swaths of every burnt color, but most of all, yellow. Here and there, scattered rings of red or black or white reveal active vents pouring out the guts of the interior in irregular circles. But most of the patches are much less regular than that. And taken altogether, the surface is a jumble that cannot be resolved by the eye into a topography. It is what it looks like, a molten world, a world on fire. The names humans have applied are redundant. Fire gods, thunder gods, lightning and volcano gods, every combustible deity from Agni, the Hindu god of fire, to Voland, the German blacksmith of the gods. All these names attempt to humanize the moon, but fail. Io is not a human place. The hard crust on its surface, cooled only by contact with the chill vacuum of space, is so thin that in many places it would not support a standing person. Some early explorers found this out the hard way. Walking too far away from their lander, they plunged through the sulfurous ground into red-hot lava and disappeared. We think because we live on cooler planets and moons that we live on safer ground than that, but it is not so. List number 10. It's too hard. There isn't time. Someone might laugh. To protect one's family, to protect one's honor, one's children, kin selection, bad seed, original sin, intrinsic evil, fortune, luck, destiny, fate, Sloth, avarice, envy, malice, jealousy, anger, rage, revenge, for the hell of it. Because, because someone else might be taking advantage. Because no one knows for sure. Because it doesn't make any difference. Because it's written in the stars. Because no one told us not to. Because we can get away with it. Because there's no such thing as utopia, Stan. Because it probably wouldn't work anyway. Because it might make some money. Because there isn't enough for everyone. Because people don't appreciate what you do for them. Because they don't deserve it. Because they're lazy. Because they aren't like us. Because they'd do the same to you if they could. Now, before we switch over to a um, shared reading, first I want to explain that uh, of all the people that would stick 
their hands in front of a volcanic vent to see how hot the steam was. It was me. <laughs> you know it was me. But I was on Nea Kamini. I was on Atlantis. Uh, it had to be tried. There it was, steam coming out of the ground. I thought, how bad could it be? <laughs> <laughs> so finally, 30 years later, I got to use it in a story. <laughs> now, um, here, uh, 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 Cecilia's going to help me for a scene. And I only want to explain that um, my main character, Swan, and I have to admit that I've read to you all the side pieces, and you haven't met any of the characters or had the plot. but. That's okay, that's 600 pages for another time. Um, but um, Swan, our protagonist, is a woman who has tried all the various cool things that could be done through a rather long lifetime. And one of the things that she's done is to have a quantum computer placed into her uh, skull in back that can both speak into the air aloud in a rather muffled voice, I must say, but also uh, can speak inside her inner ear so that she has a permanent companion that is a quantum computer named Pauline. So um, they have a somewhat conflicted relationship. Have you got this where we can? No. Is this going to work? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, i got to figure out. We'll get where ah. we can do voices. <coughs> can, can you hear me there? Yeah. Everybody can, can hear me. Back? Yeah, are you OK, this is? No, okay. you crank it up? <coughs> Which one? Crank it up. OK. Let's see. We're going to try reading. This is sounding a fair bit louder. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot better. Okay. Yeah, not 11, please. Okay. So, let's give this a try. This is this chapter is called Pauline on Revolution. So, it seems like a good time for that. Swan accompanied the inoculants back to Mercury in the first transport available, which was a terrarium only partly finished. She walked up flight after flight of metal stairs to get onto the open roof of a skyscraper, which was almost touching the sun line. From the low G roof, she could look back down, out, up. Everywhere, it was a heavily shadowed cylindrical space, crisscrossed with struts, floored by bare rock. The building was lit like a single lit corner. The building was like a single lit corner in a castle of Banksian immensity. The ground at the foot of the skyscraper was several kilometers below, the ground on the far side of the sunline only a bit farther away. A gothic ruin with some poor mice people huddled around the warmth of a final candle. It had not been like this in the early days when a newly hollowed cylinder was the very shape and image of possibility. That her youth had come to this, that the whole of civilization was really something like this, Badly planned, incomplete. Swan hooked her elbows over the rail to get some stability in the low G. She put her chin on the crossed hands and still regarding the scene said, Pauline, tell me about revolution. At what length? Go on for a short while. Revolution, from the Latin revolutio, a turnaround, refers often to a quick change in political power, frequently achieved by violent means connotation of a successful class-based revolt from below. And their causes? Causes for revolution are attributed sometimes to psychological factors, like unhappiness and frustration, sometimes to sociological factors, especially a systemic standing inequity in distribution of physical and cultural goods, or to biological factors in that groups will fight over allocation of limited necessities. Aren't these different aspects of the same thing? It is a multidisciplinary field. Give me some examples. Name the most famous. The English Civil War, 
the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the Taiping Rebellion, the Russian Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, the Iranian Revolution, the Martian Revolution, the revolt of the Saturn League. Stop, 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 stop. Now, tell me why they happen. Studies have failed to explain why they happen. There are no historical laws. Rapid shifts of political power have occurred without violence, suggesting that revolution, reform, and repression are all descriptors too broad in definition to aid in causal analyses. Come on, come on. Don't be chicken. Someone has to have said something you can quote, or even try thinking for yourself. That's hard, given your insufficient programming. You sound like you are interested in what some have called the Great Revolution. Or perhaps you are interested in social revolutions, referring to massive changes in a society's worldview and technology. Thus, for instance, the Upper Paleolithic Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, the Sexual Revolution, the Biotech Revolution. Where am I? The Accelerando as a confluence of revolutions, the Space Diaspora, the Gender Revolution, the Longevity Revolution, and so on. Indeed. Well, but what about success? Can you list necessary and sufficient conditions for a revolution to succeed? Historical events are usually too overdetermined to describe in the causal terminology from logic that you enter into when you, see, when you use the phrase necessary and sufficient. But try. Historians speak of critical masses of popular frustration, weakened central authority, loss of hegemony. Meaning? Hegemony means one group dominating others without exerting sheer force. If the paradigm becomes, comes to be questioned, loss of hegemony can occur non-linearly, non-linearly, linearly, starting revolutions so rapid there is not time for more than symbolic violence, as in the 1989 velvet, quiet, silk, and singing revolutions. There was a singing revolution? The Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania called their eight, 1989 withdrawal from the Soviet Union the singing revolutions, referring to the behavior of the demonstrators in the city plazas. That brings up a point. People in physical masses seem to matter. If enough of the population takes to the streets in mass demonstrations, governments have no good defense. They must dismiss the people and elect another one, as Brecht said. That being impossible, they often fall, or a civil war begins. Surely the literature on revolutions can't be this superficial. You're just quoting random stuff. You have a mind like the rings of Saturn, a million miles wide and an inch deep. Catechrisis and, and antiquated measurement units indicate irony or sarcasm. Coming from you, probably sarcasm. She said sarcastically, you search engine you. A quantum walk is a random walk by definition. Please upgrade my program anytime you feel you can. I've heard Wang's other algorithm is good. Some principles of generalization would be useful. All right, all right. Go on about reasons that revolutions happen. People adhere to ideas which explain and offer psychological compensation for their position in the class system of their time. Have they all been class systems? There might have been classless societies before the Neolithic agricultural revolution, but the record makes our understanding of those cultures very speculative. 
All we can say for sure is that in the post-Ice Age agricultural revolution, which was one of those more general revolutions that took perhaps a thousand years, a division into classes was institutionalized as a state power apparatus. So, never a classless society. Supposedly, classless societies have been instituted after certain revolutions. But there are usually leaders in these which quickly form a new ruling class. And the various social roles taken by citizens of the post-revolutionary state revert to classes because of differential value given to different social roles, leading to a new hierarchy being constructed fairly rapidly, usually within five years. So all cultures in history have had class systems. It is sometimes asserted that Mars is now a classless society with a complete horizontalization of economic and political power throughout the population. But Mars itself is a bully now. I mean, in the total system, they're like an upper class. People have said the same thing about the Mondragon. Oh, well, and we see how well that's going. Compared to the situation on Earth, it could be said to be a great success, indeed a revolution of sorts following incrementally on the Martian Revolution. Interesting. So, make up a recipe for a successful revolution. Take a large mass of injustice, resentment, and frustration. Put them in a weak or failing hegemon. Stir in misery for a generation or two until the heat rises. Throw in destabilizing circumstances to taste. A tiny pinch of event to catalyze the whole. Once the main goal of the revolution is achieved, cool instantly to institutionalize the new order. Very nice. That's really very creative of you. And now, quantify the recipe, please. I want specifics. I want numbers. I refer you to the classic Happiness Quantified by von Prague and Ferrer E. Carbonell. As for the process itself, Thomas Carlyle's The French Revolution is always interesting to ponder. He has numbers? No, but he has a hypothesis. Happiness Quantified has the numbers. A synthesis seems possible. What's Carlyle's hypothesis in a nutshell? People are foolish and bad, especially the French, <laughs> and are always quickly seduced by power into insanity, and therefore lucky to have any kind of social order whatsoever. But the tougher, the better. Well, all right, but what's the synthesis then? Best self-interest lies in achieving universal well-being. People are foolish and bad, but want certain satisfactions enough to work for them. When the goal of self-interest is seen to be perfectly isomorphic with universal well-being, bad people will do what it takes to get universal well-being. Even revolution? Yes. But even if the bad but smart people do general good for their own sakes, there are still foolish people who won't recognize this one-to-one -one isomorphy, and some foolish people will be bad too, and they will fuck things up. That's why you get the revolutions. Pauline, you're funny. You're really getting quite good. It's almost as if you were thinking. Research supports the idea that most thinking is a recombination of previous thoughts. <laughs> I refer you again to my programming. A better algorithm set would no doubt be helpful. Well, you've already got recursive hypercomputation. Not perhaps the final word in the matter. So do you think you're getting smarter? I mean wiser? I mean more conscious? Those are very general terms. Of course they are. So answer me. Are you conscious? I don't know. Interesting. Can you pass a Turing test? 
I cannot pass a Turing test. Would you like to play chess? <laughs> <laughs> if only it were chess. That's what I'm after, I guess. If it were chess, what move should I make next? It's not chess. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>